Hey listeners, as we wrap up 2021, we wanted to have a year-end episode discussing what happened in the business of wine this year. We were doing it live on Clubhouse on December 9th at noon Pacific time. This is your chance for you to join us in our very special guest panel to discuss 2021, including the economy reopening, wine pricing, and the natural and clean wine movement. Mark your calendars for December 9th at 12 p.m. Pacific. We'll put a link in the website and on social media. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of retail in the wine industry. And our guest today is Dave Parker, CEO of Benchmark Wine Group. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Happy to be here. I was wondering if you give Peter and myself a brief overview of your background and how you got into wine. Sure. I started in high tech, working in the Silicon Valley, and along the way, decided to get into wine by buying a vineyard. And one thing led to another and decided to move in completely, starting a company called Brentwood Wine Company first back in 1998, which was the internet's first rare wine auction house. And Benchmark grew out of that. So why did you decide to start Benchmark Wine Group as it exists today? Well, as I say, we started Brentwood first, which was an auction house, and we did it here in Oregon, which has some rather strict rules about owning the product before you can auction it. So we had to get very smart about valuation of product before we could make those kind of risk decisions. And we recognized that once we were able to do that, the margins were higher and audience was much broader in a retail wholesale environment, which caused us to start Benchmark. And are those ownership decisions considerably different than, say, a retailer would be or an auction place would be in California? Well, so we started Benchmark in California specifically because they allow dual retail wholesale licensing, which is sort of critical in the auction world. So those would be the same decisions you would make if you were in California. We couldn't operate Benchmark the way it's currently being operated in Oregon. And how would you describe the current overall wine retail landscape? And where does Benchmark play into it? Sure. The landscape really, in my view, is sort of three separate markets. I think you've got a popular market, the types of wines you might find on your grocery shelf. You've got a fine wine market for higher-end people, and those fine wines can age well. Most of them are available only at the current release vintages. Then you have a rare wine segment, which sort of by definition are things that aren't generally available or hard to find. Those can be back vintages of fine wines. Those can also be the ultra-scarce products that maybe are being produced by wineries and only sold to their mailing list or just don't get seen very often. And we play in that third tier primarily, the rare wine market. And to some degree, that stepped down the fine wine market. Each of those categories has a different group of people with different requirements and different desires. Okay, so in terms of the main difference between fine wine and rare wine, obviously you mentioned back vintage and accessibility. Are there any other criteria that you would use to differentiate those two segments? Well, yeah, I think the wine absolutely needs to be produced to age. And there are certain characteristics that you have to impart into a wine for it to age well. And a lot of people will also use a 
valuation discriminator. Even if there's only a few bottles of it, if it's a $10 wine, it may not count as rare. So we tend to think of rare wines as certainly being $100 and above. Certainly some of them get up into the tens of thousands of dollars. 1990 Two Buck Chuck doesn't fall into that category? (laughs) That would fit at the bottom of my first category, the supermarket wines. Even vintage low-end wine doesn't go into the rare category. So I am curious with these three groups, how do you see the customers in each group differing in terms of their wine buying? Is it the intent of buying? Is that substantially different? I mean, obviously we talked about price point. I'm curious, what are some of the vectors that you look at for these three different categories that differentiate those user bases? Yeah, I think the user bases are absolutely different for the three different categories. In the first group, you've got people that may just want a new experience to have with dinner and they're picking something that looks reasonably priced that's attractive on the shelf or maybe that's recommended by the wine professional and they may not have much in the way of brand loyalty or even varietal loyalty. Again, they're just looking for a beverage to have with their next meal. The second group, the fine wine buyers, tend to have quite a bit of knowledge already about various wines that are available and what they like and they do have a fairly high degree of brand loyalty. There are certain ones that they may be collecting on an ongoing basis and other ones that they're familiar with because people in their social group tend to also recognize those brands. And those are people that perhaps want to pick up the next vintage of the wine still at their grocery store, their wine shop, but really their choices, the current vintage are not at all. The third group, who are the very serious collectors and investors tend to have deep knowledge of certain wines, both from the standpoint of what they might taste like, but also from the standpoint of whether they're likely to appreciate and value and how they may age with time. So those are, in general, the most knowledgeable, the most experienced. They tend to also be the most savvy in terms of what the bottle should cost, and they tend to be experts in navigating both the primary market and the secondary market. In other words, the new releases of those wines where they can get the best prices most consistently, as well as back vintages as they may reappear in rare wine shops like Benchmark or in the auction world. Right. That's an interesting breakdown between those three segments. Are there new or emerging trends in terms of what your consumers are buying and or selling? Yes, absolutely. That's constantly changing. It used to be Certainly that Bordeaux, classified Bordeaux and first growth Bordeaux especially were the bulk of the collectible wines, the rare wines. That's changed over time. Burgundy emerged about 10 years ago as a real darling and really appreciated. Champagne also has joined that category and been there for a while. What we saw, there was a period of about a year when uh, tariffs were in place, adding about 25% to the cost of bringing mostly Bordeaux and Burgundy, in from Europe. And we saw collectors moving over to Champagne, which was not tariffed, and more specifically, also to Italian wines. Really saw demand for the very top Italian wines skyrocket. There's also demand for for Rhones and for Spanish wines that's been emerging over time. I am curious about some of the natural wine trends or in terms of understanding how the trend of how people are caring about the the viticulture practices. If you're starting to see that, obviously, there's a lot of people who would say that a lot of the top burgundy producers are kind of fall into those camps or meet those criteria, depending on what definition you use, obviously. But I'm curious on other trends that are like 
producer base that are a little bit maybe less regional, more about how the wine's made? Are you seeing things like that emerge with your purchasers? Yes, very much so. I think it's really true across all of the consumer categories I just talked about, where agricultural sustainability has become very important to a lot of people. And that's anything from being the most serious level, biodynamic, biodynamic, as the French would say, or just organic. So reducing the use of pesticides and probably more importantly, maintaining a living biota in the soil, making sure that you've got that broad range of life in the soil. It shows in the wine. You can taste a biodynamic wine. It's got a certain extra liveliness to it. Those practices are also important for reducing the need for water and reducing things like heat stress that a vine may show. So it really and truly is a healthier way of farming the grapes at every category, especially at the high end of the market where so much has been invested in the vines and the brand. That's really becoming a strongly emerging trend. I really hope that doesn't become a new MW exam question of, <laughs> can you taste if this is organic or biodynamic? Getting back to Benchmark a little bit, what makes Benchmark different and unique from its retail value proposition? So again, we focus on the rare side of the market, and that's really very unusual. Most retailers out there, the fine wine retailers, may have a small selection of back vintage and super rare wines, but that is pretty much our entire inventory. We've got by far the largest selection in the country, something on usually about 13,000 different wines at any given time, 100,000 different bottles, very roughly. We're also extraordinarily careful about how the wines are handled and inspected. So we insist on complete review of every bottle of wine. We have a large number of things that we look at that give us high confidence that the wine is in perfect condition. We handle all the transportation to assure that when we're bringing it in, that's the case. And we offer a provenance guarantee on the wine, which means we know where it came from. We know how it was stored and we stand behind the quality in the bottle. That's something that you wouldn't normally see. Auction houses tend to be more or less caveat mTOR and other retail shops that are doing this as a sideline don't have the resources that we do to really make sure that the quality is there in the wine. But then we also have a full service department. We have on staff sommeliers and salespeople that can work with any particular person to understand exactly what they might like and what wine they're getting. And a full customer service department that assures that the wine gets to the buyer exactly when they want it in exactly perfect condition. So part of being in this rare wine market, a large part of your business or maybe the core part of your business is buying and selling private collections. Why should people sell their wine to Benchmark versus at auction or another retailer? Yeah, about 80%, 70 to 80% of our product that we sell does come from private collections. And that's where some of the most interesting wines are sourced. People make a decision to sell to us as compared to auction. Generally, because they want to have a certain price quoted to them. If you sell at auction, you don't know what your final price will be or, in fact, whether it will even sell, find a buyer. 
and generally takes months from when you send your wine in to when you start to see a payment and then you tend to get multiple payments before you're fully made whole. With us, we'll go in and for a good size collection, we'll inspect it on site, pack it up, give you an exact updated quote. If, for instance, there might be some bottles that are a little bit different than you thought, you might have fewer or more of, of something than your inventory control might have told you. But we will let you know all of that and we pay immediately as the wine has been picked up, if that's what you'd like. So it's that certainty, it's that quick payment. And in general, the prices that we pay are on the high end of what you would expect to get at auction. You can have a bad auction day and get far, far less if you choose to go that route. Does that mean that your business has a very different gross margin profile from a normal fine wine retailer that is buying most of their wine from distributors? Well, yes. We have a requirement of all the verification, which is very labor-intensive. I just discussed with you, we're also equally challenged to find enough of the right product for our customers as we are to find customers for the product. So our margins look a little bit more like a distributor's might be, which tend to be higher than what an average bottle shop retailer might see, because the retailer is generally not taking anything that he doesn't know he can sell. He's taking all the same wines, the newest vintage that he's taken for years, and quite often he's getting some time to pay from the distributor. So he's got lower risk, he's got lower capital needs, and he's got lower labor needs. And so turning to then, you acquire these wines from 70, 80% from private collections. And then when you sell it, wine pricing is probably a challenge in this rare wine market, especially for older wines that don't transact very often because they're rare by their nature. How do you think about pricing these wines? We also own a company that publishes a periodical called the Wine Market Journal, which is the world expert source for auction trade information. It it tracks every wine at every significant live and online auction in the world. And its data set now goes back to about 1986. So we've got a huge data set right there. And that provides good guide for us and quite a bit of software that we've written in terms of valuing wine for purchase. It gives us some ideas of potential selling price, but then that same periodical also tracks actual sales prices of a large number of rare retailers, exactly what they're successfully selling the wine for. And so that provides a better guide in terms of what we ought to be pricing it at. Because of course, Wine Searcher also, a lot of people go to look up wines, but that's going to show them the asking price that sponsoring retailers have out there, not necessarily the prices that they're successful at selling them at. We recently talked to a few wine investment companies, and including Vinfolio, who has their own pricing algorithm that takes auction price and wine searcher pricing and their transactions on their site. Do these different pricing methodologies, do you know if they differ a lot from yours? Well, ours would take advantage of the largest database in the world with that type of information. There are certainly a lot of people like Vinfolio that will use their own sales history pretty exclusively. I think that where they're getting auction information, they may be getting it from the Wine Market Journal. There, We have a very large number of subscribers, including most of the other rare wine companies. Uh, so I think they would come up with modestly to moderately different numbers 
And to your previous question, I think that they would be more challenged in valuing the super rare, very rarely seen wines, just because they would be expected to have a smaller data set. Any online retailer, one of its main issues to contemplate, especially for wine, is shipping. How many states do you ship to at the moment? Working with the buyers, we're able to get wines into probably close to 45 states. Now, transactions take place in California, and then the buyer is the one, because he owns the wine in California, is the one that then is affecting the transfer. About, as I say, about 45 states have various mechanisms whereby somebody can legally do that. And we work with them to make sure they understand what states, if you're in Utah, you're pretty much out of luck. There's a couple others, but there are ways that most people can acquire the product. I'm also president of the National Association of Wine Retailers. I think you saw Tom Wark in one of your previous interviews, and that organization is working to continue to broaden the number of states that people can ship wine to themselves into and to make that process much easier. Yeah, I know that's how a lot of auction sites have worked in terms of because they're essentially not really owning the wine, they're transacting it, and then you take ownership locally and then ship it to yourself. It's kind of a an end around some of the process. I am curious, though, since you can ship to so many states, if you were to stack rank the states or give us your top ones, I'm curious on which states are buying the most rare wine in America. Sure. Well, I think the two areas with the highest demand for rare wine are California and sort of the tri-state area, the New York City area, which includes collectors that are in Connecticut and New Jersey and other areas around there. But other states with tremendous demand include Florida, include Texas and Illinois. There are certainly collectors in every single state in the country, and a substantial number of them. So as an online retailer, technology and e-commerce is critical to your success. What, in your view, have been the key technologies or functions or tools that have unlocked opportunities for wine retail? Well, certainly the internet and websites, that was first and foremost, and a lot of issues that arose early on around that in terms of proper and secure use of credit cards and keeping your personal information confidential. Those were all problems that had to be solved before this industry could really grow. We talked about shipping issues. Those are current and being worked on right now. Probably the next step is some of the value-add applications. So you've got now products aren't just wine search type applications, but are hey, scan a label and we'll go search for that and find you the closest bottle or the cheapest bottle or tell you some wine that you might like like that. So started to get some artificial intelligence in both label recognition and in terms of flavor and profile matching for customers. And I think that's a way of the future, like having a wine expert in your pocket. Online experiences and hybrid experiences have become bigger and bigger. Are those, do you think, important for wine retailers going forward, where they generally used to have in-person experiences? Is that a way that they can differentiate themselves? I think as we move back to the so-called new normal, after the pandemic, certainly a lot of people are going to want to go back to the walk-in wine shop experience where they have a local expert that they trust. They may have a friendship relationship going on there. They can see the bottles. They can talk about them. They can attend tastings in person and talk to other people at those same events. I think that's going to come back and it already is to a large degree. 
just like on-premise consumption is coming back as restaurants start to open up. But I think there's always now going to be this new virtual experience that we've collectively figured out how to put together. We do a program called Raid Your Cellar, where we bring a, a sommelier in to talk with a winemaker, and we make the wines available to ship to people's homes so they can join along. That's become very popular. And there are a number of other people that do those types of things. I think that's going to become a regular fixture in the retail industry pretty much forever. I was just in New York City and attended the Wine Spectators Wine Experience, which is their big event every year. And that was a perfect example of in-person and hybrid at the same time, where you were in a master class with wines to taste. And sometimes the person talking to you was there at the podium in the front of the room. And sometimes he was on the big screen talking to you from a different part of the world. I think that's just going to become second nature going forward. In communicating with your customers, obviously, especially when you're dealing with that rare wine customer who is very focused and very knowledgeable, what are your thoughts in terms of what is a unique differentiator for what those rare wine customers are really looking to see from a retailer? And how does that differ from maybe some of the other segments? Well, I think first, the rare wine collectors are absolutely concerned about both condition of the wine and authenticity. And they're going to be looking to very specialized expertise from the people that they buy those products from that let them know that those people are just as knowledgeable or more knowledgeable about those issues than they are. They're going to expect every bottle to be guaranteed, both in terms of authenticity and drinkability. They're going to probably only buy a significant amount of higher value rare product from those types of people. So it's really just the content that's changing. Is the communication channel changing much? I know that historically, email newsletters have been a main driver of direct sales from one e-commerce locations. And some people would get 30 to 50 emails a day. And some retailers are almost every day, they're sending something out. I'm curious, what actually drives the conversion of a sale for those collectors? And what's a frequency of communication that you think is healthy for those? Because you also don't want to bother them either. Sure, that's exactly right. It's a fine line between giving them as much information as they want and nagging them. I always think the difference between an interesting email and a spam is whether it really aligns with your personal interests or not. And so that's a fine line that retailers that rely on. Emails need to walk. I think emails will continue to be the most efficient and effective communication method for rare wines anyway, because you can put large lists out in front of people and they can scan them very easily and quickly find what they want or make that quick decision that there's nothing that they want. So I don't think those are going to go away. But I think that anything more than maybe one email a day from a particular source can become overwhelming. And some people might say, hey, I only want to hear from a particular one once a week. The way we deal with that, because we do have so much new product, we quite often have thousands of new wines that come to market in a week. We will segment the offers in particular ways that we think will appeal to people appropriately. We have lists of people that, hey, only want Burgundy, only want Bordeaux, only want wines in the last 20 years, don't want anything older than that. And depending on what kind of product we have to put out in a particular day, a particular person might get a different email than another person. A person that only drinks California wine 
won't get that email that only has Bordeaux in it. But the person that only drinks European wines will get that Bordeaux email and not the California cab one. So we've solved the problem because of the wide variety of products we have and the wide variety of different interests our large customer base represents that way by segmenting the emails and making sure you get the most appropriate one. I am curious on how long you've been using that methodology for segmenting user bases because it is something obviously within the rare wine that you don't always have volume, but you know you have a higher price point and scarcity. So I'm curious, is this something you've been doing for the last 10 years, five years? I think that this is an area where I think a lot of other industries are probably have been doing it just as long as that, but I haven't always heard that wine industry has been doing so much segmentation in their mail lists. We started Benchmark in 2002 and the auction house Brentwood started four years before that in 1998. And we kind of always had that concept. We've defined it over time. But as early as some of the very first emails that Brentwood sent out in the late 90s, we had a concept of what type of wines are you interested in? And we'll only tell you about those. So we called them at the time special interest groups for particular wines. Now, again, we've refined that in a lot of different directions. But We've kind of always done that for the reason that you mentioned, that we don't want to overwhelm somebody with a lot of emails. I am curious on alternative communication methods. Obviously, after the pandemic or through the pandemic, people have really been forced to evolve. There's been all these kind of like virtual experiences. People are doing wine text. People are doing direct messages or social media outreach. I'm just curious on what has Benchmark done and what have you found that actually is starting to resonate with this rare wine group? Sure. Well, certainly we have a small group of people that would rather be texted than emailed. And there's various versions of direct messaging that various apps allow. That tends to right now be a small group. The rare wine collector tends to be pretty far up the scale from a maturity standpoint in terms of his wine knowledge. And so from an age standpoint, tend to be mostly Gen Xers and baby boomers who are still pretty tied into getting their information, this type of information by email. We do have some millennials and instant messaging and the texts seem to be a little bit more what they're looking for, especially if there's a one particular wine that they really want that way. And they say, hey, text me if you find it because I, I want to be given first option on it. But emails are going to be with us for quite a while, I think. Yeah, well, and people are just doing their email on their phone now, so it becomes a little closer to doing everything that way. That's right. The use of handheld is a bigger trend than the use of apps. You just need to have a very handheld-friendly website these days, and the extra functions that an app brings to you are relatively small. Well, speaking of apps, there are several apps or platforms that have marketplaces for retailers and or consumers to sell wine to each other, like Vivino and Vinfolio, both of which were guests on prior episodes. How do you see these types of marketplaces and apps impacting the wine retail space? Okay, well, two different answers to that question, one of which I just alluded to, and that is those apps that really are just good handheld websites are sort of in a gray area where you don't necessarily need those few extra features that an app gives you in terms of knowing your location or getting a direct message. You really can get everything you need just by having a good handheld version of your website along with email. Now, having said that, some of the ones you just mentioned, like Vivino, is not a retailer per se. Rather, they're a reference seller or a reference engine, not that dissimilar from Wine Searcher in terms of 
you get on that site, you look for a particular wine and it, it taps into a large number of retailers to try to find it for you. And if it does find it, you know, it takes a percentage of the sale and makes the sale happen on its site. That is almost a fourth tier now or fifth tier in the market because it sits in between the actual retailer who owns the wine and is using his license to sell the wine and the consumer. That's certainly a wave of the future, too. It's bringing convenience and broader choice to the consumer. So since a lot of the rare wines are buying either highly allocated things or back vintages of fine wines, what do your rare wine consumers think about scores? Because most scores aren't updated. They're stagnant. They're upon release and there's a range. Maybe when it's actually in bottled, it gets an update, an official firm score as opposed to a range. It is impossible to do that for all of the fine wine across the world for any established media, let alone update them on a regular basis. What do your collectors think about scoring? Are they really going by pedigree of the producer over the scores longer term? Is that something that you even speak to in your marketing or discussions about these wines in terms of how they scored originally when they were released? Or is that something that you just talk about what your team thinks about the wines? Scores are absolutely critical the higher up the price curve you go. And one of the things that they do as a new producer appears on the scene is start to add credibility to that producer. So a brand new producer you maybe hadn't seen before, but starts to get very, very high scores by reviewers is going to start to generate a special level of attention among collectors and rare wine buyers. So from that standpoint, it is important, your point's well taken, that you can't ever have a continually up-to-date score because the reviewers are not going to taste the wines every year or even every three or four years. What's the appropriate way to even report a score if a particular reviewer has scored it two or three times under perhaps different circumstances? So they're going to be a guide. They're going to be a way of a new producer establishing their credibility. And they're going to be an affirmation that this particular wine in this particular vintage is likely to be quite good or less so, perhaps a way of distinguishing how a well-known producer did in particular challenging vintages or really good vintages. So it is useful, but not the final answer. Another thing that's interesting is sort of the voice of the people kind of reviews, the kind of reviews you get on Seller Tracker or Vivino which is a broad range of people with a broad range of ability or lack thereof to rate things, but you're likely getting reviews from tastings that happened recently and you're getting it from the average person on the street. That quite often makes a good adjunct to the reviewer scores, the professional scores, in terms of getting a feeling for how the wine might be drinking right now and what an average person might think of that experience. But in terms of those segments of rare wine collectors, do you find that it's like the score is even more heavily weighted for a Bordeaux collector than it is for Champagne or Burgundy? That's a good question. Yes, actually, I do. I think that because of the way things have arisen, a high-quality Bordeaux, as well as a high-quality California cab, is likely to have a higher numerical score than, let's say, a high-quality Burgundy. Part of that has to do with some of the specialized reviewers that have gone into various segments. And part of it has to do with the varietals and how easy or hard they are to farm to the Burgundy Bordeaux 
discussion. Pinot Noir is just a hard grape to farm and hard to get to almost a perfect level, whereas a Cabernet grape is significantly easier. You can expect to have perhaps higher scores. Thinking about the future and disruption a little, I've noticed private equity and venture capital have been sniffing around the wine and alcoholic beverage space broadly over the last few years, believing that it's ripe for disruption, tends to be fairly behind technologically and in general from a business perspective. What kinds of disruption do you see happening in this space? Well, certainly there's a lot of consolidation. We didn't have places like Total Wine and more to the extent that before that we do now, and certainly places like Costco move dramatic amounts of wine. So we're going to continue to see consolidation and more nationwide reach of the biggest retailers. Tied in with that is the technology side that you just mentioned. The wine industry has always been remarkably slow to adopt technology, even though Silicon Valley and Napa Valley are you know, kind of a short drive apart and involve a lot of the same people. I think that that technology is catching up. We mentioned a couple of the apps and websites that are getting us there. Certainly, the Wine Market Journal is another one that is going to continue to be even more of that. Our operation at Benchmark couldn't operate without a very, very large piece of software that runs every bit of our operation from initial appraisal of potential product for us to buy all the way through inventory control, front end and back end, you know, the website and the controls that the sales force uses, and then all the way through shipping and dealing with the customers after they've taken possession. So I think those are all requirements to get into the business, and those tend to be relatively big ticket items. So I think that's going to make for higher and higher barrier to entry for large retailers. The big retailers are going to continue to get bigger. The smaller ones will continue to have challenges of breaking in. Now, to some extent, they can deal with that the same way they always have, which is by providing a lot more personal service. And now virtual personal service can take the form of virtual sessions online too. And they can buy to some degree ready-made packages that may help them. So it's a trade-off. Technology is also allowed, along with some changing rules, direct to your door, delivery within hours or even within minutes for alcohol in some states. That's a big new emerging trend and will be disruptive also. It's gratification. It's always warranted and always rewarded. That's right. Wrapping up this episode, we wanted to get your take on what are you most excited about for the world of wine in the coming year? Well, I touched on a couple of them. I think that the return to normal, new normal, where we will again, have the same kind of events, ability to interface directly with our customers and consumers with each other, but we'll also have the expanded reach that the virtual world has taught us is going to make for a much more dynamic wine world. It'll be much easier to take courses, learn about new wines, interface directly with the winemaker or other key people. So I think that's really exciting. I think that we've got a whole new generation of people who maybe increased their adventurousness uh, with regard to wine during COVID and are, are about to go out and utilize that. So I think wine has come out of COVID as even a more interesting product than it went in. So I think that's the short-term exciting aspect. And I think some of the issues that have kept it 
from being equally accessible to people all over the country will be properly addressed with broader interstate shipping of wines, potentially a reduction in monopolistic actions by a few large companies, so more democratization of access to wine. So I'm looking forward to both of those things happening and happening pretty quickly. Those are definitely some things to look forward to in the coming year. Dave, we want to thank you for your time. We really appreciate all the insights that you gave us on Benchmark. If any of our listeners want to look through your large selection of rare wine or even look at selling some of their own personal sales, where should they go? Well, our website's the first place, and that's benchmarkwine.com. And if they've got a particular list, they can send that to info at benchmarkwine.com. An Excel spreadsheet's all we need to get started. They would just rather give us a call. Our main phone number is 707-255-3500. And both our sales team and our business development seller acquisition team are available at that number. Great. We'll put that in the show notes for any listeners who don't want to jot that down while maybe while they're driving. Safety first. Feel free. It'll be in the show notes. But again, Dave, thank you so much for your time. We greatly appreciate all of these learnings. Well, Robert, it was my pleasure. And Peter, it was my pleasure to speak with you also. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. Oh.